Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Industrial Professorial Fellow, Barry Drust. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to get Barry on for this episode today. We've been talking about it for probably three or four years now. And finally, during lockdown, managed to line it up. So we discuss where sports science research is at, gaps, certain gaps in education, uh, doctoral training, why pursue a PhD, what a PhD gives you, what a PhD doesn't give you, and lots of lots of things in between. So Barry was one of the first sports scientists here in English football and has gone on to have an incredible career in both practice and in more latterly in academia. So really, really interesting to get that full perspective of when sports science was super, super new here in the UK to where it is now and how we've kind of managed that journey and where we were at so if you're thinking about doing a phd because there's plenty of people out there that are or have got phds the last little bits the last probably 20 25 minutes will be really interesting for you and hopefully will inform you of what a phd is what it isn't what it will do for you and potentially what it won't so really interesting um second certainly a second half of those interested in doing a phd so I'm going to hand over to Barry, really, really interesting episode, would love your feedback as always, and I'll chat to you soon. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want, so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, and you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defense and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Barry Drust. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast this morning. I am delighted to welcome Barry Drust. So, welcome to the podcast, mate. Morning. How are you, Rob? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, very well. It's taken it's taken a while, but I'm glad we're I'm glad we're finally there. It's yeah. uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, we've talked about this a bit, eh? but we've never really, I guess, found something that that we could both think was interesting enough to talk about. Uh-huh. And Which maybe is... this isn't. Let's see. <laughs> We'll see. We'll see where the next forty-five minutes to an hour takes us. But I'm I'm really interested to speak to you, um, which is why we've spoken about it for so long. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a, an intro on your background, uh, what you're currently doing, education-wise, and just let me preface that with Patrick Ward. I'd be delighted this is happening because every oh. time every, every time we speak, need to get Barry on. Need to get Barry on. So hopefully this will uh, this will uh, deliver. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Um, well, where, where do you start, I guess? And, and I guess I'm only asking where do you start just so I don't go on too long and bore people. Um, I did my sports science degree back in the early 90s and um, was lucky enough to do a PhD with the late Tom Riley um, between 1993 um, and 1997. And... Um, my PhD was focused on uh, physiology of football, actually. And so around the time, I think, I was probably one of the first people who was doing something in a very focused way around around football physiology. And um, towards the end of that, I had a bit of a crisis of confidence, you know, like who was going to employ me, what was I going to do? And so I went for a job at the University of Teesside um, because I had some mates up in Middlesbrough, actually. Um, was lucky enough to get the job, but delayed starting for three months until I finished my PhD. Now, around that time, um, Steve Gibson had taken over Middlesbrough Football Club, and um, Middlesbrough were going through that period of um, signing high-profile players, and the high-profile players were, I guess, frustrated, I suppose, by the the infrastructure around the club, um, training facilities and things like that, and so... Um, the club approached the university, a guy called Chris Barnes, who, who I know you know very well, who had given me the job at Middlesbrough. And so before I started my job at Teesside, um, my contract had actually changed from a full-time academic contract to a contract where I spent part of the time in the university and part of the time at Middlesbrough Football Club. You know, and actually that project was really, really innovative. Um, you know, they built a lab, they put equipment in it, you know, they had a link with the university. So I was part of that, um, that initial kind of, I suppose, in some ways, wave of sports science and football. And and then following that, really, I guess I've, I've predominantly always been employed by an academic institution. Um, and I've moved around a little bit. I'm currently at the University of Birmingham after a long time at Liverpool, John Moores. But, but I've always had a foot in the, the football camp, really, insofar as, I ran the science and football programme for a long time at Liverpool John Moores, which was all around, I guess, trying to facilitate the development of, of individuals who were interested in, in the science of football. And a lot of those guys have gone on to do jobs in the industry. Um, I also, for probably about, about 10 years now, um, have been involved in a PhD training programme with, with uh, Liverpool Football Club and Again, that program's been incredibly successful in, in, in facilitating, I guess, the translation of research and also developing training opportunities for people 
um, in the research of practitioner space. Um, and then I also had a little stint as a consequence of, of I guess, um, some of my previous experience in football of working with the FA and for a four-year period, I was lucky enough to be the England men's senior exercise physiologist. So I um, went to two European Championships and one World Cup, both of which were pretty disastrous in terms of results. Um, you know, which again is like a really unique place to work. So, you know, I've been, I've been really, really lucky really in always having this dual position, you know, this, this academic role, but this um, insight into what's going on in the industry. And I guess as a consequence of that, I've been really lucky to work with some really talented people on their pathways in into um, sport um, and do some really cool projects or, or really cool projects um, in my own mind, really. I was speaking to Warren Gregson the other day for the first time. I didn't realise that he was part of that Middlesbrough crew in the early days. There's quite a few yeah. names that people would know who actually even went, came through that system or started there or just yeah, so had a little bit of time there. Yeah, so Warren was my first PhD student, actually. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so who else? So Bart, Chris, yourself, Warren, who else? Yeah, a, a guy called Reece Thatcher. Okay. Um, he was the other PhD student at the time. There was two academics, there was two PhD students, there was a technician, and there was a full-time fitness coach whose uh, name escapes me currently, which is which is terrible, really. But but he didn't stick around too long actually, and and in the end, um, Chris became the full time fitness coach actually. So that was Chris's transition from the university at the time into full time football. And then there was a guy called Peter Hood. Who I think actually he's still at the club actually. Still there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, a really innovative project, like like so far ahead of its time, and it was it's really quite interesting, isn't it? You know, I'll, I think Man United, I think probably put a lab in Carrington, I want to say around the um, maybe late 90s, mid-2000s, you know, kind of around that period. And I guess like with anything that Man United do, there's this big fanfare, understandably, you know, but, but it was almost like a project, I guess, that had been done a number of years before, really. Um, but though not in the same way, and obviously somewhere that has a lot less... Uh, ability to attract the attention of the media, and, uh, apart from in some cases challenging things in Middlesbrough, unfortunately. Uh-huh. I know that the the aim wasn't or doesn't doesn't sound like it was to get in professional sport. It was to get a job at Teesside University, but in professional sport or specifically football at that time, was the people going through PhDs to to that pathway? There was pretty much no pathway because there was no uh, there was no yeah. coaches in that. And kind of roles yeah, yeah well i mean i think what i would say is the the aim was to get a job at university side because there wasn't really any jobs in professional sport but like around that time um i think uk sport had, had got some kind of like funded phds um and and those guys in designated kind of like athletic events i know there was a guy called phil graham smith who did the one around that time in long jump and triple jump right so Phil was doing a PhD and he was working with the coaches and the athletes. And, and there, were, there were probably some, um, I guess, like fitness coaches in, um, I guess, in, in European football at the time, but there wasn't many around the UK. And actually, when I 
first did that role in um, Middlesbrough, you know, it was kind of me on the field, like like doing warm ups and taking speed endurance sessions and things like that, you know, and 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 it was only really probably in in subsequent years to that, I guess, that there's been some role differentiation, and now we have. I mean, we have really specific roles now, don't we? You know, like data analysts, sports scientists, strength and conditioners, end stage rehab, you know, like, but but back then, really, I mean, it was just like, if you were in a club, I guess you were doing everything, really. Probably like the lower divisions now, maybe in some cases, right? Yeah, yeah. It, I think this, this just shows, I mean, not to make you feel old, but the, the guys that coming in that you're dealing with who are potentially going, potentially going through PhDs, maybe just think these these things were, you know, around forever when not that long ago there was nothing. It shows you how new the industry is in from, from an elite sport point of view. Yeah, and, you know, like hugely really. I mean, I just think I remember having a footballer throw a heart rate monitor at me and, and that was – that wasn't someone at Middlesbrough, actually. I mean, that was when I was doing some data collection for my PhD, you know, um, and, and that was probably 1993. Uh, and so actually we've come a really long way in a short space of time because that wouldn't happen now, you know, because because the guys now who are senior players, right, are just growing up with this stuff in the academies and and it's almost like now they walk out onto the field and it's boots, boots, um, GPS, yeah, shin pads, you know, it's like, it's just like part of their kit. And I'm, and I'm not sure they're all massively aware of what it is or what it does or what it gives people in that, right? But they just know that they've either got it on or they haven't and they should have it on and so they better go and get it if they haven't. <laughs> so, so yeah, look, I mean, I think I think that trajectory actually has been huge and, and it still amazes me, you know, like I, I'm involved in writing a book chapter at the minute for a revision of the science in soccer book, which has been really popular, I guess. I think it's probably in its third or fourth edition, right? And so I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I better check the literature yes, tomorrow, yesterday because I don't want to write something that's old if I can help it. You know, and, and PubMed does this really nice thing now where it kind of like tells you how many papers in your search oh, have yeah. been published in how many years, right? Yeah, yeah. And and I would just like I put in training load monitoring yesterday, and like in the last two years, I mean, there's been something like like six hundred to a thousand papers or something ridiculous. And I was just like, my God, like how is someone supposed to read all of these and keep up with all of these? And like, how fast is it going? So yeah, look, I mean, I think um, it has been. Um, a really short space of time. The opportunities now are incredible, you know. And all my, all the people I've been lucky enough to work with, to to get their PhDs and things, got loads better jobs than me, right? You know. But in turn, I had lots of experiences that Tom Riley didn't have the opportunity to have, right? So, you know, it's the same for every generation, right? Like, and and all we really do is stand on the shoulders of the people before us. Now. Some of us are more cognate of that than others, but that's all we're really doing, you know, for sure. Like, we're not doing anything that's necessarily revolutionary. With that and the amount of research that is, is being pumped out, especially, like you say, in the last two years, just train load monitoring as a good example, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you keep up with that? And how do you... Uh 
you know, guide others to be able to keep up with that? Is there any specific ways that you go about it? I'm just thinking because there's the, there's a, a number of like research review services that do this kind of thing, but that's obviously dependent on the quality of the person who's going through the research with how that's delivered and all that kind of stuff. But is there any way that you go about that or guide other people to go about that? I mean, there are, there are some great things now that actually, um, you know, you can kind of like register for like a web service, right? And it, um, and it will effectively, I guess, email you um, the, the, the contents of certain journals that you select. So, so those things are a help. I mean, to be honest with you, I think it's really difficult, you know, and, and I don't read enough, actually. One of the things I want to do in 2021 is spend more time reading, right, because um, it's really important. So I suppose how I navigate it, I mean, like, I'm lucky enough to have students, and so often, um, you know, they bring a lot of interesting stuff to me, you know, which is one of the really exciting things about working with them, really. And I guess I'm also lucky enough to have a number of conversations in the week with, with other people, right, who are reading stuff or who are doing stuff, you know. So, I, I, like, it's a it's a challenge, but it's also a positive. You know, if you've got, like, like, like large bandwidth and you're able to, like, to, like, talk to people who work in clubs and you're able to talk to other academics and you're able to jump on Twitter and, you're able to get these kind of email alerts and that, do you know what I mean? You, you are able to really, I guess, get a feel for what's going on. Um, but you do become much more, I suppose, in some ways of a kind of generalist and a specialist. So I'm not sure my knowledge is especially deep anymore in some areas. I guess I just know enough about enough things at times to help me navigate around stuff, but then, do definitely have the ability then to go deep if I need to and can probably go deep relatively quickly. I guess just because of the the skills, I guess, that you build over the years. I mean, some people get better at handling a group in a warm-up, right? I suppose like someone like me, hopefully in some ways, just gets better at being able to extract key information and 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 not get bogged down in loads of detail in some cases that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Does that come with experience, Barry? That just, yeah, just come with experience. Yeah, yeah, it definitely comes with experience, and just you know, ju- just um, being able to, I guess, like missteps. You know, so so I mean, I I I've never done this before with you, right? So today, you know, I pulled the email up last night. I checked my headphones. I put them on charge. I went in the email today. You know, everything that was happening, I was like, all right, I need to do that. I need to do that. I need to do that. You know, if you if you sent me a research paper, for example. I mean, like, like, and this is a really interesting thing, you know, I often talk to students about, well, you know, how do you read a research paper? You know, and often they start on line one, right, and finish on line 377 or whatever it is. I mean, often, often I'll read, well, I'll read the abstract and then I'll read the method and often then I won't read anymore, you know, because I've largely made a decision on reading the abstract and whether I think it's, it's any good or not. And when I mean any good, I mean, I just think it's like, well, what can I use this for? You know, like, and one of the things I guess we're talking about research, really, I mean, there's loads of information out there, right? And I suppose it's about quality of evidence, you know, and I suppose like when I read something like the method, I make a judgment call on how good then I think the evidence is that's coming from the paper. And then that kind of dictates how much time I'm really going to spend on, on really trying to get hold of it in my head. 
so what what is it i mean i know this is this is we could spend the next 45 minutes on this but i think from my experience and I'm guessing, and this has been the, pre- the 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 whole thing about the podcast. If I, if I kind of struggle with something, if I, if I find something interesting, guessing that people do. So it's the the methods that people struggle the most with, method and results people struggle with. So what is it that you're looking for? What key things are you looking for which make you either dive deeper or push to the side and go somewhere else? Yeah, so, um, you know, like like good research, right? Like, like answers the question that it's trying to answer. And that sounds really simple, right? But I mean, like, it's actually not as easy as it sounds to do. You know, and so you've probably got, if, if I'm really going to talk about it, and I guess in a, in a kind of easy way without getting bogged down in specific details around specific studies, right? It's about a trade-off between signal and noise. You know, so, so, so by signal, I kind of mean... You know, if you're doing an intervention, you know, like like what is the what is the opportunity for your intervention to actually change the thing that you're trying to change? You know, be that strength or aerobic fitness or anaerobic fitness. You know, so so if I if I if we took you as an example, right? You know, and we tried to get you fit, not saying that you aren't fit, right? Like I could write you a program, and then I could like let you get on with it. And, and that would be the signal, right? Like the quality of the program that I write and, and your physiology's ability to adapt to that, like is, is, I guess, a simple representation of the signal. Now, all of the other things that could affect that, like your motivation, your diet, you know, the fact that you don't want to stop doing a podcast to go out and train, you're too busy, you know, that's all the noise, right? Um. And so good experimental design tries to really, really get a clear question. And then it tries to maximize the signal and it tries to minimize the noise. And so sometimes I'll read a paper and think, well, I mean, I mean, that's a big question, right? It, it, it seems really complicated. It seems really detailed. And then I read the method, right? And, and their attempt to kind of like create the signal is not very good and there's loads of noise so so for example right like there's there's loads of papers about football performance you know and and so here's a here's a classic kind of example you know does caffeine impact football performance and and we're doing it with a football team playing a game on a saturday well well we know that that a footballer's distances that he running a game runs in a game right are really variable so he doesn't repeat those like like with with great degrees of accuracy so so it can be it can be up to like a 30 percent variation in game on game sprinting just as a consequence of like the game and 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 the outcome and all of those things right so so it's really hard to detect that signal against that big background noise and now you're also trying to give him caffeine when he's also taking a carbohydrate gel or he's had a pre-match meal or the physio is giving him a specific like taping intervention or and he's having muscle activation, right? So there's just like so much going on with, with all of the other stuff. And that's without talking about how actually little chance you've got of detecting the signal in, in, 
in all of the other stuff that that you know you come to a point thinking well i'm not sure they can answer this question in the way that they're trying to answer it and i think actually one of the problems i guess rob at the minute i feel with research uh, and i'm going to i'll probably take off the table the word problem because it's not really a problem you know in the in that there's so much data around at the minute, right, that people just think, well, I can do that. You know, I've got this data. I've seen that Rob Paces wrote this. I can write this. You know, and and, and that's fine, you know, like, like because there's lots of reasons why people do research, you know, like to, to develop their skills of learning how to write a research paper or to support their organisation. I'm not sure all of it is necessarily novel in terms of its findings right to in some cases like justify publication in a high quality scientific journal but that's why we have different quality scientific journals right so i kind of think in a way you know having all of this research having all of this information is amazing right because we're all at a different part of our journey and we all need to access information in different ways i guess what I'd like to do sometimes, and I do it, I guess, now when I'm doing presentations, I just like to be a bit clearer about the purpose of why I'm doing it. You know, because some of the papers that I might be involved in, right, have been have been about trying to support a PhD student on their journey in learning how to publish an academic paper, not because I've been trying to publish something to say something, if that makes sense. You know, so, so cl clarity about purpose, I think, is a fundamental of research, but it's probably also a fundamental of practice and probably all of the things that we're doing in our life. And I definitely remember having a conversation with you, right, a long time ago about about this type of thing. You know, like, like what are you really doing and why? And, and that's, I guess that's something at times that people don't really get into in a deep enough way. I remember them conversations. What was which 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 um, horse racing track was it? We used to meet at. Was it? Was oh, it? Was, hey was it? Hey dog. Yes. Hey dog. Yeah. Hey yeah. Great. Great. I mean, I know you've dived into it a little bit there, but where where are we at with sports science research as a whole? And you, it may be a just a rehash of of what you've a lot of the stuff you what you've just said, but it'd be interesting to see where the gaps are with research and the gaps in education again you touched on it right at the end there the gaps in education to be able to do all the good stuff that you've just talked about and and not fall into the trap of of the bad stuff that you've just talked about yeah so so i think what we've basically got right in some cases if i'm again if i'm going to try and in my own mind simplify a bit is we've got loads of like really clever people in universities right who were who were trying to, I guess, do stuff that's, that pushes on our theoretical understanding, right, in a really deep way. And, and you know what? Some of the things that, that people can do now with a blood measurement or a muscle biopsy or, or a set of data, right, is truly incredible. But, but those people don't necessarily, right, have access to top-quality sports people or, or, or data. I guess in some cases, and then you've got loads of people who were sitting in the professional sports world, right? Who, who have got like really actually interesting applied questions in some cases, 
um, some of which are of theoretical interest, some of which are not right. I mean, some of them are just purely practical, which is fine. And they've got loads of data, but they haven't got loads of time. You know, so what what you tend to see is you tend to see the theoretical people often doing, I guess, research studies where the practitioners think, well, that's not relevant, is it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it might be really interesting, but can't use that. And then you've got loads of practitioners thinking, well, yeah, look, I've got this all this training load data and the academics thinking, well, well, you haven't analysed that the right way or, or that's the problem with this. So you kind of almost like, like get all of this information because all of these people are, uh, are, are trying to fundamentally, right, I guess, support the development of the field um, in their own way. And I guess what then we really need is just a bit more a bit more collaboration probably and a bit more mutual understanding of of the skills and the opportunities i guess that talking provides um both sets of people and and you know if i'm going to be really honest right like i don't think i'm especially bright i don't think i'm especially talented i think in lots of ways right and and there'll be lots of people who will disagree with this maybe patrick Ward will be one of them and i'm, I'm I'm just hopefully a nice enough guy to be able to be tolerated in a conversation long enough to try and to connect a few dots up. <laughs> yeah, tolerated, you know, I like it. <laughs> you know, I, I, like, I just haven't walked into a room and put my ego on the table in a way that makes someone think, well, I don't want to talk to you. And then I guess the longer you can stay in the game and the more you can build relationships and the more you can try and understand something from someone else's viewpoint is is inherently the more then that you've got opportunities to do things that other people maybe don't have to do you know you know and, and so i've been um i mean uh, and maybe that's a skill or maybe it's a personality trait i've got no idea but but it's not something that i think oh yeah well you know that that's 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 magic let's put it in a bottle and sell it right because i kind of feel like most people can probably do that if if they really want to so I guess what I'm saying is then is I think like the biggest thing that we could probably do is is start trying to find a common language because even sports science, right, terminology is not a common language between these people, right? So, so this happens all the time, you know. Uh, it's a great one, right? Like, like workload, like fatigue, you know, and, and I, I have done this, right? So like I'm kind of like laughing at myself a bit. You know, someone someone at a conference talks about workload or writes a paper on workload, do you know what I mean? You know, and I put my hand up or or I write something on Twitter as I've done, well, it's not workload, is it? Well, what do you mean it's not workload? Well, you're not measuring work, are you? Like like work's a it's like a it's like a physics related term, right? We like measure it in a certain way. It's got like a unit and you've not done that in your paper, have you? So you know what, even around technical terms, right, we don't speak the same language lots. So there's no wonder then we can't actually kind of have a nice conversation and try and work together now actually to to actually, I guess, create research that that is much bigger in its scope, right, and that has practical relevance but also has theoretical um, insight. You know, so I think I think developing people and i think we are probably in a way we can do this now with a lot because all these phd students i guess and people i've worked with who i've just talked about have got better jobs than me are now inherently the ones in 
10 years time right who will be the decision makers in professional sport you know so so this will transition i guess in some ways um you know and so maybe after i finish you know the academics will have a much better attempt to get into sports clubs and do much better research because you know like like it won't it won't be as um i guess restricted by barriers of personalities and understanding and of willingness to collaborate and and all of those things you know so there, there is loads of examples and you've been part of it at liverpool with embedding phd students within practical settings that's obviously a step forward based on what you've just said but what is the is the next step having that again what you just said having those people who have been in that them them situation and practical environments becoming the decision makers so they know the flow they know the progression or is there something else that can be done right here right now that improves the bridging that gap yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it will happen with time, right? As you say, like those people, those people um, will inherently bring with them a, a view of the world that isn't, I guess, one that predominates with key decision makers. So they will transition. I mean, I suppose. I think people often think, though, like like research in academia is like something that it's not. And I actually think, you know, that often comes from academics, right? Like using big words and like kind of trying to demonstrate how clever they are. But, you know, we all do research, right? But like, like I often use an example of a, of a coffee shop. You know, so we've all walked into a coffee shop, right? And we've all ordered a coffee and then like stood for ages in the queue, like, like waiting for them to give us our coffee. You know, and, and often when I'm standing in these queues, I think about the person behind the till and I think, you know, like, is, is this person all right with everybody waiting or does he actually just want to give people like the best service that he can and he wants to then try and find a way to serve coffee quicker? I'm sure that's what his employees want him to do, right? Because they'll make more money. You know, so so I kind of feel like in some ways, like there's a guy in a coffee shop who goes to work and thinks, oh, yesterday at lunchtime I had a nightmare because there was a massive queue and it really stressed me out. All right, so today, like when it gets to the lunchtime rush, I'm going to try and like, instead of like pulling the cups out of the, the holder every time, I'm just going to try and put some cups on the counter. And maybe if I can get the cup out quicker, right, I'll be able to give someone their coffee faster. You know, and then at the end of the day, he thinks, well, actually, do you know what? Like the queue was a bit bare today. You know, actually, oh, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow I can like pre-prepare this bit as well. I mean, that's research, right? I mean, like, you know, he's, he's thought of a question, he's, he's found a way to try and answer it, is done something different is collected some data and is like evaluated it so like we all do it but but we all see it in a much more complicated way than that right which which makes it feel like it's the preserve of a certain group of people not everybody so there wouldn't be a coach or a sports scientist or a physio or a masseur or a doctor at any level engaged in sport, even people, right, even dads who were helping their kids with their coaching, who weren't doing a coaching session and they were thinking, that was great, or that was terrible, what am I going to do different next time? And trying to collect some evidence on it, do you know what I mean? So kind of feel in some ways, it is about really just trying to say to people, <clears throat> hey, you know this thing that you think is really complex and that you don't really understand and that you hate? I mean, you're doing it, you know? 
like I'm just doing it with a bit more certainty. You know, I'm just doing it with a bit more understanding of the method and a bit more awareness of, you know, the impact of this variable on this variable. But like, you know, we can have a conversation about that. And like, actually, once you understand the process, you know, then you're away, you know, and the process really is define the question, find a good way to answer it, collect some data, analyze your data, find a way to to present it either to yourself or other people. Uh, you know, any, any more complicated than that. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Barry. Hope you are enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss why pursue a PhD. What is a PhD? What will it give you and what will it not give you? Then we have a little chat around the most important characteristics for someone to pursue a PhD and what is grossly overrated when it comes to uh, thinking about a PhD. So interest, super, super interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Output Sports, the Swiss army knife for athlete performance. So to celebrate their first year in business, after eight years of research, Output have just launched a Black Friday sale. So for the first 25 Pacey Performance listeners and followers, to use the code PACEY25, you can subscribe to their bronze package with a 25% discount until December 1st, 2020. This will get you access to an Output IMU, all their measurement modules, VBT, power, wellness, RSI, Nordics, strength endurance, mobility, and more, plus access to their AMS, the Output Hub. So check it out today to bring a new level of portability, practicality, and efficiency to your athletes' testing and tracking processes. So you can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at Output Sports where you can schedule a demo. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform Smarterbase is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one-stop shop solution for the holistic performance management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, the Australian Institute of Sport, and US Soccer. So visit fusionsport.com forward slash smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive, at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and this optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position, and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. 
The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. A mega wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com, or visit their social media channels. Cool. Next thing, so we've touched on the research, evidence-based practice. Where are we at? Given the people that come through your doctoral system, which we'll get onto in a bit, you're coming across such a variety of practitioners in a, such a variety of clubs doing such a variety of things with multiple head coaches turning over all the time. Yeah. Where, where are we at with the evidence-based practice that is going on in football? Because I'm guessing a lot of your guys are from football, but it'd be interesting to get that bigger, more rounded view. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like, I guess as a scientist, right, you want um, you want a kind of, I guess, have some understanding about why you're doing things. And, and so often, I guess, when I'm talking to people in football, really, I guess, you know, my, my approach to evidence-based practice is, I mean, is there some underpinning rationale around why you're doing it? And that might and that might not necessarily have to come from a paper, right? Because I'm definitely not naive enough to think that there are people who have got stuff that really works that hasn't come from a research paper. So I mean I was involved in some kind of low carbohydrate um low glycogen research like a number of years ago now. And we thought we were really clever, right? That we'd done this paper and then we realised that the Kenyans have been doing early morning fasted runs for years. <laughs> so, so, you know, I guess, you know, evidence can come from lots of different places. And I guess understanding why you're doing something is often something, I guess, that I really try and talk to people about. And I guess I, I, I think like that, Rob, in some ways, right? Because I think in some ways, like evidence-based practice is a bit of a misconception. Now, now, let me explain that, right? We'll go back to the example of a coffee shop. And, and there are kind of multinational chains of coffee shops, right, who can roll coffee shops out across the world because the recipe is relatively simple, right? You know, like, like, like here's the bean, here's the same machine, here's the water, here's the cups. Like, like make coffee in this way, give it to somebody else, and you'll get, you'll get more or less the same product. Now, now, elite sport, right, and things like training and rehabilitation and, and performance, right, are not that simple. I mean, they're, they're, they're really complex, dynamic, ever-changing situations. So I don't think in that way there's a right and a wrong way to answer something. There's just, here's the information I've got now, like, like what am I doing? You know, like someone hasn't necessarily seen it in a research paper in exactly the same way. So when you've got something really simple, you can probably have really good guidelines on how you do it. When you've got something that's really complex, and in some cases, right, is really about the individual, and at high-level football now, right, it's about the individual. It's not even about the team anymore. 
you know, then, then where is the research that's told me how to deal with this specific issue on a Monday at this specific time with this specific player? Not now, you know, and that's why for me then it's much more important about actually talking to people about process and understanding where their decision-making comes from, right, and where their information comes from rather than, you know, well, you, you know, did you not read that paper by Pacey in 2008 and are you not now looking at this in this way? So, you know, and again, this is about then the importance of translation, right, and the collaboration. I think anybody who's picking up a research paper and trying to deliver that research paper with an elite athlete, probably in the majority of cases, has probably got the wrong end of the stick, right? So, so I think you know we're dealing with situations that are that are actually much more process orientated, that are much more skill orientated, that are much more high level thinking orientated than they are, are about. Here's how I do this. So, the, the way I the way I see it, Rob. I mean, there's a, there's a when I'm dealing with PhD students. Um, and other people really, and wrote about this with John Barlett in a paper recently. I use this kind of like, do you know model, right? You know, do, what, what technical skill do you need? Know what technical knowledge do you need? But most importantly, like what characteristics do you as a person need to do that? So we always go to the technical skill and the technical knowledge. So. You know, like you have people on your podcast all the time, right? Who are who are experts in in knowledge, but but the process and the person, right, is is in lots of ways what have enabled them to become technical experts. You know, the ability to be critical, the ability to time manage, the ability to pull out the right bit of information in the right time against the background of all lots of other stuff. You know, and so I, I actually feel like those types of skills um, are really the way I think about evidence-based practice. I think about, well, what's your process? What's your evidence? Not what research papers have you read to do that necessarily, which to me seems a slightly different thing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. the, the next thing I was going to ask you was about things that are overhyped in our industry but i'm gonna flip that a little bit based on what you've just said and are them kind of things that you've just described the the skills and the characteristics of the person and how they're able to time manage be critical are they the things that we undervalue and overvalue the the, the converse okay yeah so so if if i if i rang a football club up now right and said i can reduce your injuries by 10 percent I could write my own check, right, to go in and do that. So, so when there's something with a definite outcome, like, like people are very um, excited by it. If I rang football clubs up now and said, hey, I want to come and talk to all of your staff and try and make them better. And then as they get better, right, all of your other processes around what they're involved in would inherently improve. I'd probably have the phone put down on me, right? So, so people get outcome, they don't get behavior, and they don't often then connect those two things. You know, so we talk about things like the 24-hour athlete, don't we? 
you know, and we all know that, but but it's not how we act. You know, like like often then the limitation is us, right? And and our ability to to operate a process, if, if that makes sense. So so you know, to me, like like I have this conversation sometimes with football clubs, you know, like like they're talking about like research and the question often is, well, what has this research done for us? And I'm like say, well, you know what, like yeah, probably. Well, research has got a shelf life, right? Like, like you know, here's a Nokia 2210. Like, like, do you want this for your phone? You know, do you want do you want the TV that you can't speak to to change channel? You know, like you used to have. So, research has a shelf life, right? It should have a shelf life because it all should get better. You know, like like what what some of these processes have given you is a person in your organisation who is now a highly adaptable, flexible thinker who can problem solve and deal with information coming in and make decisions really fast. I mean, that's, that, that's the benefit, right? So, you know, and, and I guess you, you'll know this really. I mean, it's about people, like people make an organization, right? And so in some ways, investing in the people and the support and the development of the people inherently will alter the outcome it just might not happen as fast as you think it should but but the investment over time i believe will probably be worth it do you think clubs do that and maybe touching on just just football based on your experience or looking wider do clubs do that well in supporting their staff to develop as people and again, touch on the, the critical thinking, the time management, all that kind of stuff. Do they support them as they should do, in your opinion? Uh, it varies, doesn't it? I mean, like you mean, like some clubs are amazing. Um, I mean, some clubs, I'm sure, are pretty terrible. You know, and I suppose um, what I guess again, how I think about it in some ways is right. I mean. It, it's kind of not core business, but it is core business. And again, then it's about kind of like infrastructure, right? In some ways, and like and like what you perceive you need. So, like again, at a university, I mean, the university really is about educating people. You know, does it need a sports centre? Does it need a student union? Well, you could argue not, right? But those things are important in attracting students to that university, and then add value. So, again, really, I guess every club is on its own journey and some clubs are just struggling to to deal with what comes on a Saturday right in terms of an outcome. Other clubs are able to think about some of this other stuff and then to think about other people. I mean, what, what I would often say, I guess, is that, you know, I, I, I accept sometimes as I'm talking about these things, I do think about them differently. I mean, I'm not saying I'm unique, right? So I feel like in some cases, if someone like me was having a conversation about it, let's talk about someone's yearly review, right? You know, if, if someone like me was having a conversation with someone about someone's yearly review compared to maybe someone in a football club who was more outcome focused, then the conversation would be very different. So, you know, it's really hard to say that people are supported or aren't supported and and because I think it really differs. I think there's a big spectrum. But but as we're talking about, I think there's definitely, from my view, really, this kind of under, 
you know, this, this you know, this under awareness, if that's the right way, of just like how important I think like like people characteristics are to these journeys. You know, um, and and this is the interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, I always think this. I just think if you've got happy staff, you I mean your staff are your first interface with the players. You know, if you've got staff who are stressed and miserable and stuff like that, we we don't go into restaurants, right, where the staff are. Uh, are angry do we we go into restaurants and cafes where like the staff are positive and happy and have a chat with you and you know so do feel like people are really are really undervalued in lots of ways but i don't think that's about football right i mean both me and you have transitioned out of organizations i guess in the not too distant past and you know like it's difficult isn't it Mm -hmm. no absolutely yeah so the next point I wanted to bring up was pursuing a PhD. And I guess when you came through in, like you said, the early 90s, early to mid 90s, if you had a PhD, it was like, my, my if, if it's like someone in a football club, mind blowing. Like then it went, okay, everyone starts to get undergraduate degrees and it's that's the kind of barrier of entry. Then it's gone to, to master's. And I did a little bit of research, don't, have it quite here with me based on uh it was a salary survey anonymous salary survey in football and i think it was something like 75 percent of respondents had an msc or above in british football top four leagues two leagues in scotland um and 160 in total so 75 percent had a master's or above many of which had postgraduate qualifications is a PhD, are we going the way that, are we, are we following that trajectory in a PhD being the next thing that not becomes the norm, but almost is the is the barrier of entry to get the best guys in the best jobs in, in elite sport? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some truth in that, right? You know, so, so let, let, let me just um, think about it, I guess. You know, like if I was to put a PhD position on Twitter, um, linked to a football club, I could easily have like 350 applications, right? Now, now we're all inherently lazy, you know. And so, if I could remove, you know, feel bad about saying this in some ways, but I think it's a reality. And it's again, it's the thing that sometimes people don't want to accept. I mean, I think if I could remove 200 of those applications, right? from people not having MSCs and it could give me more time to spend then on the 150 that did, I would do that. And so I think then what you're saying is right, right? I mean, I just think the industry is so competitive at the minute that everybody is trying to look for a point of differentiation. And one of the key points of differentiation, especially in in something that I guess is still seen as in some ways academic is, is, well, has this person got a PhD? Um, so I don't think it will be long in some cases before before that's happening. Um, do I think you need a PhD to do some of those jobs? Well, not necessarily. Partly yes, partly no. But yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a trajectory around that. But but I don't think that's just sport, right? You know, I mean, I just think if you went to things like the police or to healthcare or to business right i mean there is just this general kind of like like 
scramble up a kind of qualification ladder, right, in order to kind of demonstrate, um, I suppose, ability, you know what I mean? Well, it's like, and there'd be, there'd be people my age, like 30-ish, who were, a lot of which were the first people in their family to go to university. I was, my wife was, like my mum and dad would never had the opportunity to go to university, just like many people's parents. So it's just this natural progression. Yeah. And and, yeah. and you can love it or hate it. That's just that's just how it's going because of more access to, to funding to, to these positions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I mean it it will a PhD will never be the new MSc, right? Just because of what a PhD is compared to an MSc. But in terms of what you're talking about in terms of entry qualifications i mean the other thing actually that happens is i think lots of people sometimes pick up kind of doctoral training and phds um when they're thinking about transitioning and they might not often always realize that they're thinking about transitioning but a lot of the guys i deal with right now you know had an msc have been in industry five years I guess in some cases have kind of got that tracksuit and t-shirt and they're kind of in some ways looking for something else, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, I think, um, yeah, that they, at times I think they definitely see it as a, as a pathway to, to something else. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say doctoral training and PhD, to me, that sounds like you see them as two very, two very different things. Can you define what you mean by doctoral training? Yeah, so um, the, the way academic qualifications work right now, I mean, they're leveled, right? So, like, we used to call it, like, being in the final year of your undergraduate degree, year three. Well, now we say you're at level six because an undergraduate degree is at level six, right? Like, an MSc is at level seven. You know, and, and we have those kind of, like, gradings, right, because that enables someone to do an MSc in geography and an MSc in sports science, right? And have like an equivalence of learning. Well, well, doctoral training is level eight. And, and there is a set of descriptors around what somebody at level eight should be able to do, just like there's a set of descriptors at level seven and at level six. So, so a PhD is only one way that you can in some ways demonstrate level eight skill. It's only like one potential route to getting, I guess what I'm gonna call a, um, a doctoral degree. You know, and, and now actually there are lots of people, certainly in the UK, in some cases around the world, who are trying to develop different models because again, you know, like the traditional PhD model was kind of, was developed like hundreds of years ago, right? Again, for like a specific purpose. And for sure, the people I deal with now like want some of that, but don't want all of that. And so I believe as kind of like academics and university and things, right? We need to be providing learning opportunities that are kind of like relevant to the skills that people want, really, and the skills that people need. So, yeah, a, a PhD really is only one way in which you can, I guess, go through a doctoral training um, experience. Yeah. So how does what you deliver or have delivered through LGMU and now at, at Birmingham, how does that differ to a, to a regular PhD, these, these two? How do they differ? 
So, so a regular PhD, right, actually um, has got some quite, I guess, kind of like strict criteria around what it has to do. And, and, and it definitely has to have novelty, right? And that novelty often is restricted to um, new theoretical knowledge or new methodological approaches, like relevant to science. So, so it's adding to our knowledge in the science realm, right? Like in, in recent years, I guess I've been involved in um, more professionally orientated PhDs. And in a professionally orientated PhD, the newness, the novelty can be orientated towards your own practice. So that can be you as an SNC coach. It can be you as a physio. It can be to your organization. You know, so if I guess if we use an example, um, for you in some ways you know like you finding a new piece of technology to do this podcast is not the same as conceptually finding a different way to engage people with information it, you know so that's kind of almost a difference right and actually that comes back maybe to something that I was talking about before in terms of clarity of what you're trying to do because I think lots of people who have done PhDs didn't necessarily really want to contribute to science, right? They just wanted the skills that doing a PhD project gave them. And so now I guess some of these newer programs allow us to um, make questions more relevant to people, which enables us then to, I guess, engage them in a different way with the subject material than we could previously. It, I don't know whether that makes sense or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. So the outcome of a PhD people can then work at a university, for example, here in the UK. Is that a similar situation with these are the methods like you've described? Okay. Yeah. yeah so, 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 so look come out with exactly the same level eight. Yeah. 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 You know, so, so, you know, if you were to go to Birmingham, for example, and you were to do a traditional PhD, you know, you would have a doctorate from the University of Birmingham. If you did the, the, doctorate in applied sport and exercise science which is the fancy name for the professional doctorate you would have a doctorate from the university of birmingham we just we just slightly alter the orientation of the research and we just slightly alter the process a little bit about how someone gets there but but, but effectively in terms of skill not necessarily in terms of project right people should get to the same place so characteristics for people that are, from your experience, successful on that path, whether it be a PhD or down the professional doctorate route, what do you think people need as a, as a personal skill characteristics personality to be able to pursue that and pursue it successfully? You know, the, the, the one thing that um, I guess I'm going to, I think it's much more personal than it is like like technical that's not saying you can't have technical ability right I'm, I'm talking about intellect now by technical ability but i think it's much more personal i think the biggest thing is willingness to learn right so and let me explain that so i'm dealing with people now doing phds right who are who are really high level functioning professionals in in an organization so they know what they're doing 
you know, largely. But there's this concept called territorialization of knowledge, you know, and and so some people, some people when they're an expert in one domain, like find it very difficult to switch off that feeling that they're an expert in, in other domains. And so what, what I guess I sometimes see, right, is someone who is really successful, who is, is a key decision maker, who has got all of the answers, who you know, knows what they're doing, who can time manage and push themselves through a certain process at work, who now has to accept in some ways that they're at ground zero and they're building <laughs> up a skill base in a different way. You know, and, and you're laughing. Um, but that actually is quite a difficult thing for us all to do. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, I spend lots of my time just saying to somebody, you know, like, like you don't know, like, you at the minute, you don't know what level eight is. I mean, you know how to get a footballer back to first team training, right, and competition. And I wouldn't know that. So it's a difficult place for me to get someone to because I don't don't really know the challenges at that at, in that process and that top end you know you don't really know the challenges around like level eight or what it looks like so so talk to me about it you know show me early drafts of work you know fail fast you know but but these people and the organizations they come from like don't suffer like like poor work easily so they hold on to it, right? They try and make it perfect, but that's like the weird thing. They don't know what perfect looks like, right? So that's like an impossible cycle to be in. So willingness to learn, I guess, ability to come out of your comfort zone and, and actually say to yourself, well, yeah, you know what? I'm just gonna, just gonna think back to how I once was and embrace all of this. I'm not gonna bring my own baggage of knowledge and put it on the table next to me and say, yeah, now work around that. And and actually, you know, it's great that they've got that knowledge because you can do things that you couldn't do otherwise, right? So actually, I think that's like the biggest characteristic, but everybody thinks it's intellectual ability. Everybody's like, oh, am I clever enough to do this? Oh, like, can't can get all of these high-level concepts. I'm like, yeah, well, let's not just do a project that involves high-level concepts then. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't mean, right, that we can't, we can't teach you the process and develop some of these skills in a way then that again just moves you from here to here and then maybe you'll just be able to do those types of projects later on down the down the line mm -hmm. so in terms of practice what does going through that process do for someone day-to-day -day, either during or, or post process post doctor yeah. training so what this is this sounds really aspirational if you know what I mean. But when people say, um, uh, you know, when people talk to me about doctoral training, right, coming on, whether it's a PhD or a professional doctorate, I always say to them, you know, why do you want to do this? And they always tell me that, you know, it's it's because they want to find out some more knowledge about how we rehab hamstrings and stuff like that. And I say to them, yeah, you know, that's great. Maybe we'll do that. I said, you know, what I'm really trying to do is change the way you think. And that really sounds aspirational, right? But but I think like when a PhD is done well, it makes you see the world really differently. So, you know, suddenly 
you realize that that question you've been trying to answer for three years is just like too big and messy and isn't like precise enough to be answered. Like suddenly you realize that, you know, every day, the way you've looked at the data that you get from the GPS report alters as a consequence of whether you've just had your lunch or not, uh, you know. And suddenly you realize that, I actually, you know, really need to do that in this way. And oh, actually, I didn't realize I could go and get information from here. And now I feel confident enough to have a conversation with person X that I might not have wanted to have before. So, you know, I think there are probably multiple ways. And I think in some ways, Rob, I mean, they're all different for different people. But I think, you know, I would really try and encapsulate them in that, in that well, it's about changing the way you think. And, and definitely, um, I love my PhD and it definitely changed the way I saw the world. And hopefully you can hear I'm like really passionate about doctoral training, actually. And that's why I guess I wanted to do this, this talk because, I mean, that's such an amazing thing to see happen. And it's such an amazing thing to be involved with, you know, and, and I've definitely seen examples of that, um, you know, again, with some of the people who we've talked about and they've all done that differently. You know, so if you, you know, like I was lucky enough, I guess, to supervise Warren and I was lucky enough to supervise James Morton. And if you spoke to both of those people, right, they'd be very different, you know, and they all went and they went through that process differently and they've probably taken different things to their practice from it. But but I think, you know, I would hope both of them would say that, that it changed the way they thought. Cool. Happy days. That's been great. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. A anyone that wants to get some more information about you, your work, anything, you know, doctoral training-wise, where's the best Where's the best place to go, Barry? Yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on the University of Birmingham's website. Um, and you know what? Like, it, it's great to have um, these conversations, really, because as much as I'm passionate about getting people to think about doctoral training, you know, I also accept in some cases it's not for everybody. And, and, and often, right, um, you know, when you, when it's really hard, I think, to sometimes say no to people. And so often if people are having conversations with people about PhDs, I guess potential supervisors are going to be very reluctant to say no. So in some cases, right, like I just have conversations, like sometimes then people can't get independent advice. I guess okay. in some cases is what I'm talking about. You know, and as much as I guess I am associated with the University of Birmingham, much as I want people to come on that program, I'm also perfectly happy to kind of say to people, oh, you know, what about this? You know, I guess this edu this educational experience is at a level and requires a commitment that's not for everybody. Everybody can do it, but it's a timing issue, right? So, you know, whether people want to talk to me about coming to Birmingham or research or whether they just don't really know who to talk to, about some of these issues and then i'd be more than happy to try and help superb well thank you very much for the last hour really glad we finally lined it up and um we'll catch up soon hopefully yeah we'll, we'll wait for patrick ward's feedback eh yeah let's let's and if he's done all the right things it'll be super super critical so uh but no doubt no doubt he will a few um a few jokes in there as well but really appreciate it barry yeah, yeah. No, thanks, great to bro. chat. Great to chat. Okay, thanks, thanks, mate. Bye. 
Thanks for tuning in to episode 336 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I was super excited to get Barry on and it definitely didn't disappoint, so I hope you uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Fusion Sport, Omega Wave, and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. As I say every week, the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really, really do appreciate their support. So thank you for tuning in and I'll chat to you next week.